I'm Bernadette Crawford and I am on the learning and practice group of the consortium, uh, the Irish consortium for GDP um, on the equality of rights and the concern worldwide. And I'll be chairing the QA session later. But let's start off. Um, we, we actually, the, the consortium wouldn't have been able to be in this space, it is a wonderful space in the Trinity Library Hub without our collaborations and partnerships uh, with our colleagues in Trinity. So I want to. Um, Ask Gillian to do some opening remarks. Hello, everybody, and you're very welcome here to uh, Trinity's Loan Room Hub. Um, I'm Gillian Wiley. I work in uh, the Irish School of Ecumenics. I teach on masters in international peace studies uh, in that in that department. We're one of the departments collaborating uh, with uh, the consortium on gender-based violence uh, in this. Uh, two-part series on masculinities in transformation. So on behalf of my department and also the Centre for Gender and Women's Studies at Trinity and also the Long Room Hub itself and also the Trinity International Development Initiative, TIDY, uh, which is a network of researchers across the whole university who are interested in development issues broadly. Um, we have been very happy to have this chance to to work with the consortium uh, in relation to this uh, series about masculinities in transformation. Um, I say tidy, um, the, the remit of tidy as a network across the university is any issue that relates to issues of sustainable development um, and obviously gender issues are very key in the work that tidy does. The Long Room Hub has an ongoing research theme, uh, Identities in Transformation, uh, and it fits very nicely with uh, the question of changing masculinities. Uh, gender and Women's Studies, as is obvious from its title, um, has a broad remit in the field of uh, women's uh, issues, but has over the last years broadened to think about gender more widely and the construction of masculinities as well as femininities. And then in my own department, we are teaching our students around and researching around issues related to gender as it shapes war and peace in particular. Um, so I think for all of us, the, the four Trinity units who have been uh, privileged to uh, take part in this series, this is a, a, a very uh, a happy uh, uh, cooperation that is, is taking place. Uh, with the Consortium on Gender-Based Violence. Um, the first of these uh, talks was in October. We had uh, Dean Peacock uh, from uh, Sonke Gender Justice in South Africa. And Dean, I hope many of you were there. Uh, I imagine you were. Uh, Dean spoke very uh, engagingly and interestingly about the work that Sonke has done in the last decades to um, to, uh, to work with community groups and men's groups about changing gender roles, challenging gender-based violence, using the law, using uh, political platforms to challenge gender norms uh, in South Africa. And he did say to us that Michael Flood is great. So we, uh, <laughs> you have been, uh, you've been uh, flagged by a uh, previous speaker, so we're uh, sure that he's correct. So we're absolutely delighted that um, Michael is here, and uh, particularly given uh, Michael's work on uh, the issue of engaging men and boys in violence prevention, um, and particularly how that relates to wider work for 
gender equality uh, in societies, uh, both where he's from in Australia and I imagine with global, uh, global uh, significance as well. So I am absolutely thrilled that we're about to hear him speak, but I think he's going to be introduced formally by Carmel, yes, Carmel Irandus uh, from World Vision in Ireland. Carmel is a graduate of the Peace Studies Masters in uh, my department, um, and it's a, it's a great thrill for us that she's gone on from her studies with us to become the Policy and Advocacy Officer for World Vision and she brings a great energy to that role. Uh, only last week she organised a different event in Trinity uh, related to the showing of a film about humanity celebrating World Human Rights Day. So Carmel uh, is always uh, looking for new ways to engage with people on the issues that concern everyone working in the field of development, particularly today, questions of gender, gender equality and development. So I'm Delighted to ask Carmel to say a few words about the consortium and to introduce my Welcome. Welcome. Hey, welcome. <laughs> on behalf of the Irish Consortium on Gender-Based Finance, serving as the chair of the Learning and Practice Group of this SCGP, I would like to warmly welcome each one of you in this room, uh, because although we think that it's uh, casual to actually have the development and humanitarian field uniting the efforts to discuss about this important theme with academia is not that casual. It's actually something very unique and we hope to promote these spaces more and more together. Um, but I would like to say that yeah, we were lucky to have Mr. Dean Peacock with us and we're even luckier today to have in our Masculinities and Transformation series uh, Michael Flood with us. Um, and just a few words about the Irish Consortium on Gender-Based Islands with your permission. Uh, you have seen some reports or some documents about who we are and what we do. But let me tell you a bit more. So it was formed in 2005 and it brings together Irish humanitarian and development organizations together with Irish aid and with the Irish Defence Force in a very unique consortium that is uh, tackling gender-based violence and trying to promote gender equality. And so what we try to do is to really explore the 12 different organizations, Irish Aid and the Irish Defense Forces, to see what are the best ways to be able to give a voice and protect the rights of women and girls all around the world. And um, you can see, actually, some of you may have been there. We have launched a report a couple of weeks ago that is called Women, War and Displacement. And it illustrates the connection between conflict, displacement, and gender-based violence. You may find some cookies outside. Uh, I have said the word women and girls a, a lot, and you may hear it also a lot, but um, it's because today there is enough evidence to say that 91% of the gender-based violence against women is perpetrated by men. It is foolish and it's not doing justice to the purpose of gender-based violence to talk about it without having men in the conversation. And we're pleased to have Michael Fabulous with us today that will accompany us to try to tackle and understand how do we engage men. One woman in three still experience physical or sexual violence, mostly by an intimate partner. The President of Ireland has said we must unequivocally recognize that gender equality is a right and not a gift, and that men must demonstrate leadership to achieve gender equality. With your permission, I will read a bit about Michael Flood today, uh, about he, some of his credentials for us to really 
Kadler, the fact that he's actually very knowledgeable in this product, uh, of course. Um, but he's an associate professor in sociology at the University of Wollongong in Sydney, Australia, and an our future fellow from 2015-2018. His research agenda focuses on gender, sexuality, and inter interpersonal violence. He conducts research on the organization of heterosexual men's social and sexual lives and relations, and more widely on gender and sexual relations. He's an internationally recognized researcher on men, masculinities, and violence prevention, and he has made significant contribution to scholarly and community understanding of men's and boys' involvements in preventing violence against women and building gender equality. Just because I came back from this meeting today, there is an, um, you know that the, uh, you know about this international framework called the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, and there's a particular goal that is called the SDG 5. If you have not checked it, check it out. And we know from from fact as well and from experience that all of these goals are intertwined, and we cannot uh, promote gender equality, uh, gender equality until and unless each of these goals have this strong foundation. And before I give the to Ms. Dr. Michael Flood, I will leave you with this image I like to use to illustrate why and what is it that we're trying to do in this space and this conversation. The world of humanity has two wings, one is woman and one is man, and not until both wings are quick, equally developed can the bird fly. Should one wing remain weak, flight is impossible. Thank you. Look, thank you for that introduction and thank you too for um, reminding us of the context for this work. It's really nice to um, hear that and it is inspiring to be at an event organised by the Irish Consortium on Gender-Based Violence. The, the thing that got me over to this part of the world was a conference that's just taken place in Cambridge, a conference in Cambridge called Political Masculinities. And this two-day conference was in fact focused on the ways in which men can be agents of change, agents of change towards gender equality and towards a world free of gender-based violence. And it was a conference that had academic presentations and also programming and policy presentations, and really it was a nice kind of exchange between people involved in scholarship and advocacy and programming. Um, and it was, I mean, so, you know, I came all the way for that. It's, I think it's 22 hours on a plane to get to this part of the world, um, 14 hours and then another eight. And so having made it this far, I thought, you know, I should do some other things as well. So I'm delighted to have liaised with Bernadette and her colleagues at um, the Irish Consortium to be here today. Um, one thing I should mention is the PowerPoint that I'll be using will be available from the Irish Consortium on GPV's website. What I'm going to do uh, this afternoon is I'll start with the problem. I will start with the problem of gender-based violence or um, violence against women. And I'm going to talk about how that violence is an issue, in fact, for men. The ways in which violence against women is an issue for men, a men's issue. I'll give you a sense, a kind of taste of the different ways in which men around the world are being engaged in efforts to prevent and reduce violence against women. I'll give you some sense of how it is that some men have become passionate advocates for addressing that violence, how it is that some men you know, come to be some advocates and activists and so on. And I'll finish by spelling out really what men can do, the kinds of things that men can do. So I'll be speaking to the men in the room in a sense, but also to those of you who have men or boys in your lives, which is probably most of you. But uh, before I go any further, I thought I should say who I am. Now you've heard, heard a little bit about that. I've kind of got three hats. And one of those hats is that I'm an activist. I got involved in 
anti-violence activism in my late teens, early 20s, um, in grassroots groups, for example, like Men Against Sexual Assault. And Men Against Sexual Assault was an activist group um, in Australia. I founded a magazine, um, this is very old-fashioned, but a printed magazine um, called XY. Uh, and XY was this pro-feminist magazine about men and gender issues. Uh, lasted about seven years, and it's now a website. And xyonline.net continues as a, as a website and really is a clearinghouse, a clearinghouse of resources about men and gender. Out of curiosity, this may be nobody, but has anyone ever seen XY? Okay, so three or four of you. Anyway, it's, um, I'm a kind of frustrated librarian, and so I, I've collected there a whole lot of materials, manuals on working with men, debates over men's roles and feminist um, concerns over emphasis on men's roles, um, and the site addresses violence against women. It also addresses sexual and reproductive health, fathering, men's health, body image, a whole range of issues. It's worth, it's worth looking at. Um, I've also been involved in the White Ribbon campaign, uh, which is a campaign for men to show their concern about violence against women by wearing a white ribbon, typically around the 16 days of activism. I've also been involved as a community educator, working with nurses, with doctors, uh, going to schools and talking to young people and so on, on safe sex, on uh, violence, on other kinds of issues. And finally, um, I'm an academic. I'm, you know, I'm good at reading and writing. Um, and I do research, I do funded research on the roles men can play in, in preventing violence against women. And I write on some other issues as well. I've been writing recently, for example, on the ways in which pornography is shaping young men's sexual lives and sexual behaviours. And I'm increasingly concerned about the role that pornography is playing, particularly for young heterosexual men, um, in terms of their, their potential sexual coerciveness. But as I said, um, I'm going to start with a little bit about kind of what violence against women is. And I'm conscious that I'm using the term violence against women or men's violence against women. And I'm doing so at an event that uses the term gender-based violence. And I, mean, I think there's debate over the terms we use. And there are other terms, of course, domestic violence, sexual violence, family violence, and so on. And any term we use will both include and exclude. Um, any term we use will be loaded in certain sorts of ways. And I don't think there are any terms that are entirely satisfactory. Um, but I'm going to stick with the phrase, men's violence against women. So, uh, I'm going to run through, in about five minutes, um, 40 decades of feminist and academic insight about this. And I'm not going to do it justice. But one of the first things that, that feminists, um, feminists did was listen to women. Listen to women's accounts of the things they found hurtful or um, degrading, or threatening, or, f or um, frightening, and so on. And feminist work has named a wide variety of forms of violence that women and girls experience, um, perpetrated, as you heard, um, largely by men and boys. Um, and so uh, feminists and others have named a kind of wide range of behaviours which women find threatening, violent, or harassing. So one thing that's happened is we now have language. We have language for things that were previously invisible, taken for granted. And of course, there's a long way to go still. Um, and there are many, you know, many times when violence occurs, but it's not named as violence or reported and so on. But we now have a language. We have a language for naming um, patterns of violence between uh, intimate partners or uh, spouses, domestic and family violence, for example. We have a language for naming patterns of behaviour where one person pressures or coerces or forces another person into some kind of sexual um, activity, sexual violence, marital assault, and so on. We have terms for se sexual abuse and physical abuse of children. We have terms for culturally specific forms of violence, forms of violence that are more common in some contexts than others. So that's one really significant insight. 
And one really, one really important thing here is that it's named the patterns of violence and abuse that were normalised, that were taken for granted, that were just what husbands do with their wives, that were just what boys do to girls, that were just what women have to put up with on the street, and so on. And of course, there's still a long way to go. So, broadening the challenging dominant definitions of violence. And that's still a real challenge. So, for example, um, there's this notion of kind of real rape. Real rape is when um, a woman is sexually assaulted in public, you know, in a dark alley. Sexually assaulted in a dark alley by a man she doesn't know. He seriously physically assaults her, causing injuries, and he sexually assaults her. And that stereotype of real rape, in fact, doesn't fit what the majority of rapes look like. The majority of rapes and sexual assaults are by men known to the woman, are often in a familiar location, her house, his house, um, their car. Um, often don't involve severe physical violence, often don't involve severe injuries, and so on. And the fact that the dominant definition is so narrow, narrow means that many women whose experiences do fit the legal definition of sexual assault don't report, don't tell their friends, blame themselves, don't tell police, and so on. Coming back to, say, domestic violence or intimate partner violence, we know that when a man is using physical violence against his female partner, often he's doing a whole range of other non-physical things as well. He's threatening her with violence, he's intimidating her, he's pressuring her into sex, obviously that's a physical um, behaviour. He may be constantly putting her down, using names and insults and so on. He may be battering her self-esteem, in other words. He may be controlling her movements and policing her contact with other people, with friends and family and so on. He may be isolating her from others. And of course, he's likely um, to be minimising and denying his own use of violence, to be blaming her for the violence, you know, if only you were a better wife, if only you did what I said, if only you didn't look at other men, and so on, blaming her. And in fact, there's something called the power and control wheel. Um, hands up if you've seen this, the power and control wheel. So this, was a, this is a kind of depiction of the typical pattern of domestic violence. And what it highlights um, is that, I'm sure you can't use the text, that's can't the text, but it says... Using intimidation, using emotional abuse, using isolation, minimising, denying and blaming, using children, using male privilege, and using economic abuse. And there's text underneath that that goes into that in more detail. What this power and control wheel is illustrating is that when it comes to, say, domestic violence or you know, violence um, by a man against a woman in a household, typically what we're talking about, in fact, is a pattern, a pattern of power and control where physical violence is in fact accompanied by a whole series of other abusive and controlling behaviours. And in fact, it may be the case that there's no physical violence at all. He's never hitting her. He's never physically assaulting her, but he is controlling her movements, he is isolating her, he's putting her down and so on. And then the question then is, well, do we call that domestic violence? There's no physical violence involved. There's no bruises, there's no scars, and yet there's something deeply abusive, deeply harmful going on. Rather than resolving that debate, I think it's, it's just worth pointing to the kind of complexity of what's going on here. Um, and in fact, there's a continuum. There's a continuum of behaviours. And media and public commentary often focuses on what's on the right-hand end of that continuum, the kind of severe forms of physical violence and sexual violence. Um, sexual violence by men unknown to the female victim, um, serious physical violence involving bruises, um, involving broken bones, or indeed involving death. But what we know from the research and from women's own experience is that, in fact, there's a continuum. There's a wide range of forms of behaviour that um, women find threatening or intrusive or harassing, and, in fact, they're linked to each other. That um, the more that we tolerate, for example, sexist language and sexist jokes, 
the more then that we allow sexual harassment, sexual intrusion, intrusions, other forms of gender-based harassment, and from that, the more that we allow um, more blunt or explicit forms of violence. So there's a continuum of range of violence, and in fact, they're linked. So one thing that's important to recognise here is that when, um, when a woman is sexually assaulted by a man or um, beaten by a man or you know, controlled and coerced by a man, that man probably isn't, doesn't fit any kind of profile of someone who's sick or mentally ill. In fact, most violence is perpetrated by normal men, men who fit the psychological profiles of men in general, in normal families. I don't mean normal as in good, I mean normal as in common. Um, normal as in uh, you know, sort of almost kind of socially acceptable. And we know too that violence is a choice, that in that classic situation where a man is using violence against his female partner, he will do so very carefully. He won't assault his female partner in front of his boss at the work barbecue. He won't assault his female partner in front of uh, the priest. Um, he's more likely to do so in private and in, and in carefully chosen and strategic ways, in careful and strategic ways. He may work himself up into a kind of righteous anger, so his violence may look like a loss of control, but it's probably not, in fact, a loss of control. It's quite strategic and careful. Um, and the final thing to say here is that the links I've been drawing between men and men's use of violence and so on are not biological. They are social and cultural. They're deeply social and cultural in origins. And I'm going to come to that in a minute. Um, I've been focusing on men's violence against women. Of course, we have to acknowledge that uh, men too are the victims of violence. In fact, in my country at least, men are more often the victims of violence than, than women. Most victims of physical assault in Australia are men. And their perpetrators, overwhelmingly, are other men. Mo men are most at risk of violence from other men. And in fact, there's an epidemic of male-male violence that we are thoroughly blind to. We blame alcohol and other causes, rather than the dynamics of power and gender between men. And of course, some men are the victims of violence by women. The victims of sexual violence, the victims of domestic violence. They're not one in three, they're not one in five, they're a tiny minority of the victims of the patterns of power and control I've described, but they are nevertheless um, a proportion of those victims. So, um, I'm going to ask you a question. Let's assume that each of you has an 18-year-old daughter, let's say, or 18-year-old sister, and she's single, and she's sick of being single, she wants a boyfriend. She's heterosexual, she wants a boyfriend. And she's lucky that in the room next door there are 1,000 men who are potential... Um, this is probably actually what it feels like on dating websites. Probably, probably you know, if, if you've ever been on... I don't know what, what the dating websites in this country are, but OK Cupid is a common one in Australia, for example. Probably for some women it does feel like there are 1,000 men who are interested in dating each of those individual women. Anyway, so you've got an 18-year-old um, sister or daughter or friend... She wants, you know, she wants someone to date. There's a thousand men in the room next door. Which of those men are going to treat her with respect and care and would never use violence against her? And on the other hand, which men will be dangerous for her? Which men are more likely to use violence against her? So, so I want to ask you, what would it be useful for you to know to predict which of those men will or won't use violence? What would it be useful for you to know? How they pick their... Treat their pets. Treat their pets. Okay, that's interesting one. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. There is um, there's a growing body of um, evidence that abuse of pets is a really reliable risk marker um, of abuse of other people. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. So if you know, for example, that those men are you know literally being you know being cruel and hurtful to dogs and cats and other pets, that would be a bad sign. What else? Okay. What 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 might that tell you? Let's say that 
Uh, some of those men, which is incredibly likely, have grown up seeing violence, say, by their fathers against their mothers. What, what might that tell you? So you know that, you know, let's say you know, okay, this guy has witnessed violence by his dad against his mum. What might you then conclude from that? Or how would that be useful information? So, mother, there is a, it's okay. Okay, so the thesis here is that those men who witness violence as children, uh, witness or exposed to violence as children, will be more likely to use violence themselves. Now, that's true. There is evidence that children, and especially boys, less so girls, but especially boys who grow up witnessing or being exposed to violence in their families are more likely to use violence themselves. And there's two causal chains there. One is about social learning. Social learning, my dad does that to my mum, it must be okay, that's how you resolve conflicts, or that's how you get your way. Another pathway is trauma. That living and witnessing violence uh, is deeply traumatic for children, and in fact can limit um, boys' abilities, for example, to be empathetic as adults. But um, it's not inevitable. These patterns are not inevitable. And indeed, some boys and girls will, who've seen violence as children will grow up passionately committed to never living in that way themselves. But, so I might tell you something, but you know, none of these are defining risk markers. Um, in fact, what else might it be useful for you to know? Dating history would be great. What, what might you want to know about their dating history? So a guy who's had 30 previous girlfriends each for two weeks, maybe he's just extraordinarily unlucky at you know, finding people <laughs> who will commit. I mean, probably that's not the case, but in a sense I'd be less worried if he has, say, has had lots of sexual experience or little sexual experience. I'd be more concerned, how has he treated them? So if we had perfect information, we'd be interviewing his previous girlfriends. That would be a really good source of information because, uh, and this makes obvious sense, the most reliable predictor of whether an adult man will use violence against a woman is him having done so previously. So, you know, knowledge about how he treats, how each of those thousand men tre have treated their girlfriends in the past, that would be great. Also, how they treat their mums and their female friends and so on. Is there anything else you might want to know? Okay. That's an interesting one, because I think the, the research on insecurity is complex. It does show that pattern of men who are kind of heavily invested in being the kind of man in the relationship and wearing the pants and being dominant, and where that feels threatened, then try to recapture that sense of power and control using violence. There's also some re research to show, for example, that um, in relation to bullying and sexual harassment, sometimes that's done by the most confident people. People who don't have low self-esteem at all. In fact, they're very confident of their ability to, um, you know, to get girls or to you know, treat others in demeaning ways. So self-esteem is complex, I think, in terms of the thing that might, um, how it might play out. So I'll give you um, uh, a bit of analysis here. So I'm going to talk about three broad clusters of factor that shape men's violence against women. And the most important, the most important one is the first the ways in which gender, women's and men's lives, and the meanings given to women's and men's lives are organised. The most important determinants or risk factors or causes, whatever term you want to use, are found in gender norms and gender relations. So let's look at some of these. And, and then there's the other two, and I'll go through those as well. So the first one is about attitudes and beliefs. So, you know, if you really wanted to know about those thousand men, you'd administer a survey. You'd administer a survey, one of the kind of uh, reliable surveys that are out there about attitudes. Attitudes towards gender, attitudes towards sex, attitudes towards women, attitudes towards violence. Because it's consistently found that men with more sexist attitudes, men with more hostile attitudes towards women, are more likely to use violence than other men. 
Putting that the other way around, men who have respectful and gender equal, non-sexist attitudes are far less likely to use violence against women than the first group of men. And in fact, those individual attitudes are often grounded, are often based in wider norms. Kind of wider norms about what it means to be a man or a woman. Wider norms about how people should behave. Um, so, for example, research among young men and uh, women in uh, Australia, in the US, and I imagine in Ireland, shows a kind of pressure on girls. A pressure on girls to be, sexually, to be sexual objects, to see themselves only in terms of their sexual status and their sexual availability. A pressure on boys to kind of push girls, to see how far they can get, and not, not take no for an answer and so on. There are also um, questions of gender that shape violence um, in relationships and families. A key predictor is inequality. If it's an unequal relationship, if, for example, it's a 25-year-old guy and a 16-year-old girl, and there's an inequality in terms of how they, how they treat each other, who makes decisions and so on, that increases the likelihood of violence. Likewise, in families, families that are male-dominated, where there's male economic, decision sorry, male economic power, male decision-making power, um, have higher levels of violence, especially when there's also conflict, especially when there's also marital conflict. So if you've got a deeply unequal relationship, kind of powerful husband, um, subordinate wife, and there's disagreement and conflict between them, then you get higher levels of domestic violence. Strangely enough, if it's like that, but they both agree on this inequality of power, you don't get levels of violence. It's not ideal, but um, it works in different kinds of ways. Um, I mentioned um, peer groups. Peer groups are a factor too. And research, for example, on college campuses, on university campuses, finds that one risk marker for men sexually assaulting women is if they've got male friends who also sexually assault women and who think sexual assault is okay. Who kind of thinks, yeah, she's really drunk, but you know, take her off to a bedroom and see what you can do. Or, or is happy kind of rating girls on their appearance. Or happy talking about girls as... Um, the term in my country is slut. Is it slag in this country? Um, isn't that charming? Isn't that um, so, um, so, you know, if, if men have peers who believe in those double standards and so on, they're more likely to use violence themselves. And we know, so there's been some really interesting research on, for example, the university residences um, on a campus. And there might be five university residences, and women in one residence might report much higher rates of sexual violence than women in other residences. And so people have done research on what's shaping that. And some things that shape that are um, residences where there's kind of sexist norms, norms about women's and men's behaviour, where there's strong codes of male bonding, where there's gender segregation, what you were talking about, women and men aren't friends, they kind of see each other as you know, alien creatures, um, where there's high consumption of alcohol, where there's use of pornography, and so on. So in other words, there are risk factors for uh, sexual assault, domestic violence, not just at the level of individuals, but at the level of peers and peer cultures, at the level of institutions. Finally, there are risk factors to do with gender at the levels of entire communities. There are some communities that have more violent supportive attitudes, more unequal gender roles, stronger codes of male honour, for example, of male dominance, and you get higher levels of violence against women in those cultures and communities. So we often say in this field, oh, violence against women crosses all classes and communities. Now, it does. Rich and poor women are sexually assaulted. Rich and poor men um, use domestic violence and so on. But violence against women doesn't cross classes and communities evenly. It's shaped by other social factors, including gender norms, including gender norms. But it's shaped by some other things as well. So I'll look briefly at those. So, and this is good news for those of you who work in domestic violence centres or support domestic violence resources. There's evidence that when a community has domestic violence resources, 
when it's got phone lines and good police response and legal advocacy programs, then women are less likely um, to uh, suffer intimate partner violence, domestic violence. Um, one thing that changes is they're more likely to get out. They get out more quickly. Rather than the average age at which women stay in a violent relationship being 15 years, it goes down to 7 years or 6 years and so on. Violence in the community is a factor. And the most powerful example I can think of is in my country among Indigenous communities or Aboriginal communities. There are very high rates of all forms of violence in Indigenous communities by men against women, by men against men, by women against men, by children against adults and so on. All kinds of violence, um, particularly in rural and remote Indigenous communities with very high levels of disadvantage. So for example, rates of intimate partner homicide where someone is killed by their intimate partner are 36 times higher in Indigenous communities than non-Indigenous communities. And one thing that's going on there is very high levels of violence in general. So that domestic violence becomes part of and wrapped up in and tolerated by and intensified by other patterns of violence. I've already mentioned childhood exposure to intimate partner violence as a risk factor as well. So there are other factors that are less to do with gender and are more to do with advantage, advantage and disadvantage. So we know, for example, that there are higher levels of domestic violence um, in poor communities, in disadvantaged communities. And it's not that having less money in your pocket means you have to hit somebody um, or you know, have to be hit. Instead, it's the things that go along with poverty. Things like crowding and stress and, hope and hopelessness and conflict and, for some men, a sense of inadequacy. Some interesting international research about sort of rapidly changing economies in Africa and elsewhere where men lose access to being the breadwinner. And particularly where the social norm is still men should be the breadwinner, some men try to find other ways to kind of assert their manhood, including through violence. Lack of social connections is an issue too. If if we think, for example, about young women, about teenage, teenage girls, if teenage girls aren't in school and who have parents who aren't really supervising or actively involved in their parenting, parents who don't know where they are, for example, at night and so on, they're at greater risk of violence. Um, and social isolation can be a cause of violence. It can also be a consequence. So, for example, some men will very deliberately isolate their female partners so that they can more effectively abuse them. They'll cut them off from their families and their friendship networks. There are other things at the level of... Um, so I've talked about poverty among individuals and families. Poverty and disadvantage also make a difference at the neighbourhood level. People are less likely to step in, to go around next door and say, are you OK? I heard that argument last night. Can, you know, can, I, you know, can I help you? Should I call the police? People are less likely to intervene, to support each other, and so on, um, when there's low levels of, kind of, a collect, you know, of, of a sense of community and so on. Um, in Indigenous communities in Australia, colonisation and racism have a profound impact on domestic violence. The kind of breakdown of family and community because of racism, um, because of you know, 200 years of um, racism and colonialism. Personality characteristics are a factor too. Now, I, I always sometimes hesitate to mention this because I think out in the community, personality characteristics is kind of number one. Why do some men you know, hit their wives? Oh, it's because they're crazy or there's something wrong with their heads. That's not generally true, but... Things like um, uh, borderline personality disorder or mood disorders or depression are a risk factor, can be a risk factor. Um, and I'm not saying something stupid here like, you know, everybody with mental health issues will be involved in domestic violence and vice versa. That's not true, but it's a, it's a risk factor. Um, alcohol and substance abuse are a risk factor. Again, the interview this morning was me trying to steer away from kind of stupid accounts of how alcohol plays a role in domestic violence. 
So for me, for example, no matter how drunk I get, I'm never going to hit or assault anybody. It's just not going to happen. Um, but alcohol does play a role. So for example, um, some perpetrators will use being drunk or being stoned or high or whatever as a way to minimise their own responsibility for violence. I was drunk. I didn't know what I was doing. And likewise, when a woman is drunk, she may be seen as more sexually available. Or indeed, someone might be deliberately getting her drunk um, as a way to lower her resistance, her ability to resist sexual assault and sexual coercion. Um, does anyone know what the most common um, drug is in people's drinks that facilitates state rape? Alcohol. Okay. Um, okay, so final thing is uh, situational factors. We know that there are some times and settings when the risk of violence goes up. So, for example, if a woman has been living with violence in a marital relationship or a cohabiting relationship and she leaves, the time uh, around when she leaves is the most dangerous time for her in terms of intimate uh, homicide. So women who've been living with violence already, the risk of violence goes up. The severity of that violence often goes up when she then separates. Okay. That's, that's my kind of... I mean, it wasn't five minutes at all, actually, but that's my account of um, the kind of factors that shape... Um, men's violence against women at a kind of multi-level. And I wanted to acknowledge that in fact um, the context for that violence are shifting and so is that violence itself. So there's been lots of attention in Australia for example to what people call revenge pornography. Hands up if you've heard the phrase revenge pornography. Okay, um, I've got colleagues in Australia who don't like the term because it's not always for revenge. Um, pornography, calling it pornography can uh, kind of legitimise it and so on. But what, what we're talking about is the non-consensual, so the unwanted, the non-consensual production or distribution of sexually explicit images. So let's say um, a boyfriend and girlfriend have made, have taken uh, sexually explicit images together with each other's knowledge, but then he distributes it after they break up. Or he um, takes a photo or a video of them having sex without her knowledge and distributes it. Those kinds of things. That's what revenge pornography refers to. So we've got new mediums for abuse. The internet, mobile phones and so on are generating new places where um, new forms of abuse, such as circulating images without someone's consent, which does profound harm to them. But uh, spaces like the internet are also uh, new mediums for old forms of abuse. So 20 years ago, if you wanted to stalk your partner, if you wanted to control them and notice their movements and so on, you followed them around in your car or asked their friends and so on. Whereas now you can do so electronically. You can do so electronically and technologically in other kinds of ways. I mentioned pornography. I think that pornography is increasingly visible in young people's um, cultures and is having an increasingly damaging impact, um, particularly by feeding into sexual violence and so on. Um, I don't know if you've got good data in Ireland on community attitudes. I know there was the, just that EU survey. I don't know how closely it looked at each country, but EU survey about attitudes. Certainly in Australia, we've seen some progress in terms of community attitudes. People are more likely to recognise domestic violence and so on. We've also seen some regress. People are more likely in Australia now than they were 10 years ago to think that women lie. Women make up accusations of rape. And that's disastrous. That's terrible in terms of what it tells victims in terms of their willingness to report and so on. Um, okay, where are we up to? Um, okay, before I go to this, I'm going to show you a video. I'm going to shift now um, to engaging men, to engaging men and boys in prevention. And in the violence prevention field, there have been all kinds of shifts, but two important shifts are, one, a shift to primary prevention, a growing uh, attention to the challenge of preventing and reducing that violence in the first place. We have to respond to victims and survivors, 
We have to hold perpetrators accountable, but we also have to take steps to stop that violence from occurring in the first place. The other shift I want to focus on is a growing emphasis on engaging men, on the role that men can play in stopping that violence and abuse. Anyway, so there's been a shift to the, no the notion that we need to engage men in this field. And really that's driven by three kinds of um, rationales. One, that uh, violence against women and girls is perpetrated overwhelmingly by boys and men. Second, as I've already said, that constructions of masculinity, that what it means to be a man, is a powerful influence on violence, and that the men who do and the men who don't are shaped in different ways by different um, constructions and practices and peer cultures and so on to do with gender, to do with masculinity. And the third insight is a more hopeful, a more optimistic one, that it recognises um, that many boys and men are already living in non-violent ways, that many boys and men already treat the women and girls in their lives with respect and care and so on, and that men, as well as many men as well as already uh, behaving non-violently in their own lives, are taking public advocacy roles in trade unions, in social movements, in governments and elsewhere. And so that's really where this kind of engaging men emphasis comes from. It also is driven by some other um, insights as well. One is that uh, to change men, that in fact it's often uh, other men who are most effective at doing so. And there's kind of a, uh, something troubling here, something depressing here, that sometimes men will listen much more readily to other men, will listen much more readily to <laughs> men than to women. Always. So in fact, what was that? Always. Always, okay. So people have even done experiments where they get two matched groups of men and give them both the same text um, sorry, give lectures using the same text, exactly the same words, but one read by a man and one read by a woman about gender violence and so on. And the one read by the man, you know, the men in the audience go, oh, he had some reasonable points to make, you know, there was some interesting material there. The one read by the woman, they're much more likely to say man hater, feminazi, lesbian, and so on, to, to judge it quite differently. Um, so sometimes we need to use men to speak to other men. But of course, it's also very important for men to listen to women and to hear women's experience. Um, and I'll come back to what inspires men to get involved in this later on. The other thing is if we want to make change, we need to make change in our institutions. And many of our institutions, in fact, are run by men. Not by, they're not run by poor men or working class men, they're run by rich, white, powerful men. Um, but uh, those men can be agents of change as well, and in fact can use their power for good. I mentioned champions of change there. That's a, there's a project in Australia which is trying to get senior male CEOs, so they're kind of heads of banking uh, and other kinds of, you know, big corporate institutions to be male champions of change, to be advocates for gender justice and gender equality. And of course, if we only work with women, if we only work with women trying to improve women's um, access to gender equality in their relationships and households and so on, and then we send them home to men who've not changed at all, who know nothing about what's going on and about, um, about this kind of project, then, then that's deeply unfair to those women, that in fact inviting men in is more likely to make change. So that's the kind of rationale why there's been this, um, this attention now to the role men can play. I'm going to focus today, as, as you've already guessed, on primary prevention, on efforts not to respond to victims and perpetrators, although that's very important, but efforts to prevent initial perpetration, initial victimisation. And I'm going to give you a taste, a fairly speedy taste, of a number of different ways in which people have tried to engage men in this work. And people have tried to do this at different levels. Because we recognise that gender-based violence or men's violence against women is shaped by different levels of society. It's shaped at the individual level, the community level, the societal level. We also have to work at these multiple levels. 
And I'm going to run through six levels of intervention that start small and go up. They go from micro to macro. So the first one is working with individuals. This is the most micro level. So, for example, if, if witnessing or experiencing violence in the home is a risk factor for using violence or suffering violence as an adult, then we should do something about that. We need effective programs um, for the boys and girls who are witnessing or experiencing violence. Um, there have also been interventions in parenting. Interventions, for example, to encourage men to play positive and involved roles in their children's lives. So Men Care, for example. Men Care is an international campaign that tries to improve men's involvements in parenting. And it argues that that has spin-off benefits for domestic and sexual violence in terms of fostering non-violent, respectful forms of parenting among men. But it's really this second level where most work with um, men has been done. Face-to-face -face education and also communication and social marketing campaigns. So just to focus on face-to-face -face education, there's a whole stream of work now in schools in Australia, for example, in universities in the US, um, in um, universities in England, I believe, if the, if the task force report that just came out is taken up, um, that involve face-to-face -face education with groups of men or with mixed-sex groups or groups of women. Um, and so here are some examples. This is, a, you know, this is a US men's group talking about rape and sexual assault. This is kind of Consent 101, where these, through discussion, these men uh, learn about the importance of consent, you know, why consent matters in their sexual relations with women or indeed other men, um, and how to do consent, what negotiating consent lo looks like. And negotiating consent is not, um, she didn't push me off. She didn't say no. Negotiating consent is checking out what you're doing, um, you know, an explicit verbal or other forms of um, negotiation. Um, and this is a more recent example. Again, you know, a program called Got Consent in the US. Sometimes this work is mixed sex. This is women and men in Liberia, in Africa, talking about gender roles and kind of working out ways collectively to have more um, respectful gender roles. But at this level of community education, there's also communication and social marketing. And um, I heard very briefly before this session that the Irish government is putting some money into a national social marketing campaign. I heard that that money came from services for victims and survivors, I think. That sounds terrible. Um, but anyway, um, so communication and social marketing is a kind of popular strategy. Um, this is one well-known campaign directed at men from the US called My Strength Is Not For Hurting, run by the organisation Men Can Stop Rape. So on the left, my strength is not for hurting, so when I was drunk, I backed off. On the right, my strength is not for hurting, so when she said no, I said okay. So you can see how this campaign is directing itself to men, trying to increase their norms of sexual consent, their practices of sexual consent. I've picked the ones that are heterosexual. There, were, there was a poster series that was same-sex as well, but these, these two are heterosexual as well. Again, my strength is not for hurting, so when I wanted to and she didn't, we didn't. On the right, my strength is not for hurting, so when she wasn't ready, I didn't push it. Can I ask you, um, what do you think about the tagline, my strength is not for hurting? What do you think they're trying to do there in this poster series? No, I think, you're, I think you're exactly right. I think what it's trying to do is take a traditional masculine quality, strength, strength understood as power over, kind of strength um, over someone else, and redefine it. Redefine it as a kind of inner moral strength, an ethical strength, something like that. And so it's interesting, it's using a stereotypically masculine quality we're trying to redefine it a little, and that's sometimes what you see in these efforts. This is a different kind of campaign. This is a social norms campaign. And social norms campaigns start from the fact that often men, and women too, but often men overestimate other men's agreement with sexism, other men's support for violence. 
And if you can document, in fact, what the level of belief or support is, then you can shift social norms. So the poster on the right, 74% of college men would intervene to prevent a sexual assault. Now, I think prior to the campaign, which was these posters around campus, probably most men thought no one else is going to do something if they think a sexual assault is going on. No, you know, um, I wouldn't know what to do, probably no one else will do anything, but the, but the actual evidence is that most men, three-quarters of men, um, sorry, four-fifths four of men, would intervene. Um, and so you try to shift the social norms about that. Um, men can stop rape. They were doing that campaign, my strength is not for hurting. They now do this campaign, I'm the kind of guy who takes a stand. And this is bystander intervention. Bystander intervention is encouraging men or women um, to intervene in violent supportive attitudes or violent supportive situations. So on the left, when Jason wouldn't leave Mary alone, I said, she's not into you anymore, let it go. On the right, when Kate seemed too drunk to leave with Chris, I checked in with her. So what it's trying to foster is pro-social bystanders. Um, men or women who see that there's something problematic going on, that, that girl is way too drunk to be led off to a bedroom, she probably couldn't freely consent, or my friend is constantly harassing his ex-girlfriend, he's texting her all the time, he really should stop, and to do something about it. Um, this is a New Zealand campaign, mana, it says it's about mana, and mana is a Māori word, indigenous word in New Zealand, that means strength and masculinity, again in some kind of um, interesting way. So we saw this guy pushing his girlfriend around, so we stepped in. Um, my mate kept referring to girls as his bitches, so I said with that attitude a German shepherd, which is a type of dog, would be as close to a girlfriend as he'd get. So in other words, you know, trying to encourage bystander intervention. Some, some social marketing campaigns appeal to particular groups of men, fathers in this case, on Father's Day, you know, I'm in the New York Times. Um, there are other strategies as well, I've mentioned some of these. There are also, also strategies to try to get the media to report on violence in better ways. In a number of different countries, you've now got women's rights organisations issuing guidelines, or governments even, issuing guidelines for how the media <coughs> should report on violence against women. Because one key problem is victim blaming. Blaming the victim when reporting on domestic violence and sexual violence. Um, another, another strategy is about addressing the impact of media. This is a, an effort from Australia called It's Time We Talked. And It's Time We Talked is a project about pornography. And it involves curricula for young people in schools. It's not curricula that shows them pornography. We're not idiots. But curricula that gets young people talking about pornography. Because the vast majority of them will see pornography. And it's trying to make it less likely that they will take on the sexism. And the kind of callous attitudes towards women that are part of pornography. So it involves school curricula, but also resources for parents. Because parents uh, sometimes do and certainly should have conversations with their kids about pornography. Um, and uh, teachers and so on. Um, so that's all, that's all level two, community education. So face-to-face -face education, social marketing. The, the remaining three, um, four levels, there's been far less work. But one level of work is working with professionals, trying to improve the ways in which professionals um, deal with domestic and sexual violence. So, for example, there have been projects in different countries trying to get police, police to respond better to incidents of domestic violence, to take it seriously, to arrest the perpetrator, things like that. And often when you're working with police or judges or lawyers, you're working largely with men. And addressing gender, talking about gender and gender roles, is an important part of that work. Um, up again, um, up the next level, is about mobilising communities. Actually mobilising communities and developing communities. Um, and that's based on the, the, the insight that 
violence against women is grounded in social norms. Grounded in social norms and gender roles and power relations. So we actually have to get communities involved. We have to develop the ways communities work. We have to engage communities in change. We have to mobilise communities. Um, and so I've got some examples here of efforts to mobilise men. Of course, it's, historically it's been women. It's been women in the women's movement who've mobilised to raise attention about violence against women. And I wouldn't be here. I couldn't say any of this stuff without that history of women's movements activism. And there's now grassroots men's groups and networks that are working with and alongside women's groups and networks. So this is Men Against Sexual Assault way back in the early 90s in Australia. Um, marches on the street and other kinds of protest action. Um, the White Ribbon Campaign... Hands up if you've heard of the White Ribbon Campaign. Okay. Um, so in Australia, the White Ribbon Campaign is really big. There were 800 events this year. There are 1,000 men who have decided to be ambassadors and they're public advocates for the campaign. There's a schools program, there's a workplace program, and so on. Now, the White Ribbon Campaign internationally focuses on the role men can play in stopping violence against women. In Australia, it's a bit different. Some of its activities do that, but some of its activities don't. But I'll give you, I'll give you some examples. So, public marches and events. Um, uh, this was an event in Sydney, top left, called Real Men Walk the Talk. You can see that language there of real men, and some people don't think that's a good idea to emphasize real men. Other, men, other people say it gets people in the door. Powerful masculine institutions have taken up the White Ribbon campaign. There's a tank, an Australian army has taken on this work, and of course, there's some issues there. Schools have taken on the White Ribbon campaign. Um, faith leaders, top left, there's a, an interfaith meeting with Jewish and Islamic and Christian faith leaders pledging their support for addressing family violence. Trade unions, bottom left, uh, and an image from um, New Zealand there. Um, um, so, moving up another level, the second last level is about organisations. Now, I mentioned training professionals before, but there are other efforts that actually try to engage in whole of organisation change. And we know that um, organisational efforts scale up violence prevention, and that, in fact, if you want to do violence prevention well in a school, for example, or you want to do violence prevention well in a sporting code or in the military, you have to work at multiple levels. You have to work at the level of the formal culture, its policies, its processes. You have to work at the level of the informal culture, what's taken for granted, how people treat each other, how leaders speak, and so on. Um, and so there's a real argument for engaging organisations in change. It's not done very often, but there are sort of uh, promising whole-of-school violence prevention initiatives that have shown real impact. Two examples from Australia of institutions taking action. One was the Australian Football League. Um, Australian Football League is one of our major sporting codes. Um, and in the wake of a series of sexual assault scandals where elite level players were alleged to have sexually assaulted a number of women, they were under enormous pressure to take action, to do something about sexual assault. And they instituted a kind of multi-level policy involving uh, codes of conduct for players, sanctions for... Um, committing domestic violence or sexual violence offences or even just being alleged to commit those offences, um, an internal culture change campaign involving social marketing and so on. So they really tried kind of multi-level action. Australian military went through a similar process, again in response to um, a sort of high-profile incidents of sexual assault. Less systematic, but um, does involve new curricula for its recruits, involves um, policies and processes for the reporting of um, violence and so on. Um, and there's a growing interest in Australia to campuses, what university campuses can do. In the next month or two, there's going to be national level data on levels of violence against women and girls on campuses, uh, among staff and students. 
And the obvious question then will be, well, what should we do? And what I and others will be saying is you should do something like what's on the board there, a multi-level strategy that addresses um, campuses and campus cultures at multiple levels, from the senior leadership of the university to um, the education programs that students go through, and so on. The final level is law and policy. And law and policy are really important for um, victims and survivors and perpetrators, but they're also really important for prevention. They're important for, um, partly because they're symbolic. If, if a country has strong laws on domestic and sexual violence, that actually shifts community norms. It shifts community norms about what's seen as acceptable or unacceptable. Um, second, uh, that's really important for sort of establishing particular strategies of prevention. Gun control, for example. <laughs> or strategies on the um, availability of alcohol, or strategies for what can be shown on TV, or strategies for what can be taught in schools. So when I was in um, uh, England last week, there was discussion about the, the national government's reluctance so far to mandate sexuality and relationships education. So it's not, it's not federally kind of mandated. Schools have to take that on. And that would be an obvious vehicle for encouraging healthy and respectful relationships among young people, is sexuality relationships education. So law and policy matter. Okay, so let's pull back a bit and look at this field. Let's look at the men's anti-violence field. It's really well established. There are international networks like Men Engage. There have been uh, international conferences. There have been two global symposia. There are various groups and so on. There's also a body of research that it works. There have been three published reviews. Reviews of the 100 or 200 published studies out there um, on violence prevention work with men and boys. Some of that work is mixed sex, some of that work is just with men and boys, and there's evidence that if those interventions are designed well, and that's a big if, that can make a difference. Um, not all of those interventions work, but there's some evaluation evidence. This work has increasing international support. The United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, the Beijing Platform for Action, various international commitments have also emphasised the need to engage men and boys. This work is um, growing in scale. Now, you might say, look, size doesn't matter, um, but it does matter in some ways in terms of making social change, um, you know, in terms of reaching uh, bigger organisations and cultures and so on. And most of this work is based on feminist frameworks. Most of this work has kind of sensible understandings about the links between uh, domestic or sexual violence and gender inequalities. Most of this work is done in collaboration with women and women's groups, or often done by women and women's groups. But there are some limitations, and there are four I want to flag. One is, is that much of the work isn't done by men at all. In fact, it's done by women. Certainly that's true in Australia. I don't know if that's true um, elsewhere. But in Australia, much of the White Ribbon campaign, for example, strangely enough, is organised by women. Two-thirds of the community events were organised by women. Um, and um, there's a second issue, too, that if we keep kind of emphasising the need to engage men, we can actually give the false impression that men should be in every room, in every program, in every service, and we make it less legitimate to have women only and women-focused programs, and that would be a serious mistake. Women only, women-focused programs remain very, very important. Um, but the emphasis on engaging men has kind of diminished the legitimacy of that work. And in some ways it's kind of pushed women aside, it's pushed the women's sector aside to some extent. And there's been some competition uh, for funding. It's been rare, but it has happened. I think there was a case in England around the tampon tax, actually, and, and White Ribbon UK taking money from the tampon tax. I hear there was some controversy about that. And that, that's one of the few examples, I think, where there's actually been direct competition over funding. There's also a sense in which some of this work needs to be a bit smarter. 
So, for example, some of the work treats men as if men are all the same. And we know that's not true. We know that's not true. We know, for example, that men's lives, just like women's lives, are shaped by race and ethnicity, are shaped by class, are shaped by sexuality. So an intersectional framework that recognises that gender intersects, gender, gender intersects with other forms of social difference, race, class, and so on, we have to apply that to men as well. Um, so sometimes the work with men treats men as homogenous, doesn't address some of the complexities of violence itself, and so on. And finally, we need to know a whole lot more about what works and doesn't work. We really need to know, for example, whether we need different strategies for kind of high-risk men, men who already have violence-predisposing attitudes, as opposed to other men. We need to know um, what factors shape men's commitment and kind of sustained involvement in this work, and that's what some of my research is about. We need to know how other forms of social inequality and injustice um, shape, um, shape men's involvement. Um, okay, so I wanted to ask you, why do you think some men, why do you think some men, I've been talking a lot about you know, men using violence and men perpetrating violence and men tolerating violence, which is all fairly depressing and confronting. How is it then that some men actually come to a passionate advocacy against violence, come to a commitment to not using violence themselves, a commitment to public activism addressing violence against women? What do you think would shape that? Yeah. So you're, you're, you express some reservations about this kind of constant focus on men's care for the women and girls in their lives as the only way to get men in the door. No, personalising it. Only personalising it. Okay. Yeah. But it is the case, and so I'm not disagreeing in pointing out that for some men that is what brings them in, is that kind of personal connection, is, is men hearing about women's experiences of violence, they're a partner or a wife or a sister and so on. Um, certainly for me that's been powerful and the more that I talk about this with the women I know, with female friends and girlfriends and so on, the more I realise that probably every single woman I've ever met has um, experienced some kind of violence or abuse or harassment um, in her life, that this stuff is just ubiquitous. Um, the research finds a number of sort of typical themes. So one is the first one we've already mentioned, the connections to individual women, hearing women about women's experiences of violence. Another is also personal, but about kind of living in uh, and being exposed to egalitarian or equal gender roles and relations. Having a dad or an uncle or friends or um, aunties or you know, others who kind of model respect and care and equality in their everyday lives and taking that on. The third one hasn't been mentioned, and that's being exposed to feminism. Um, some men come to a concern for these issues um, from doing gender studies at university, or from being exposed to feminist ideals because they joined the environmental movement, or the labour movement, or the queer movement, and feminist ideas were part of that work. Some men come to a commitment to, to addressing violence against women because they're Christians, or because they're Jewish, or because they're Muslim, and their faith, or their understanding of their faith, feeds them into a commitment to non-violence or respect, or because they're socialists or progressive or so on, um, and experiences of violence were mentioned too. Um, I'll finish on this point, um, on, on yeah, so making this argument, that violence against women is a men's issue. And you know, one confronting way in which violence against women is a men's issue is that it's largely done by men. When that violence occurs, overwhelmingly, it's done by men. But there's other ways too in which violence against women is a men's problem. And one is very everyday. You know, I'll be working, walking back to my hotel tonight. It'll be night time. Um, and, you know, if it was a, a quiet street and I was walking along the street and there was a woman walking in front of me, she quite rightly might be thinking, is he following me? Is he planning to assault me? So, you know, it doesn't matter how nice a guy I am, I seem a threat because, you know, quite understandably, that's a, that's a kind of reasonable threat for that woman to perceive. 
And so in other words, some men's violence, the violence that a minority of men do, gives all of us a bad name, makes all men seem a potential threat. Um, and violence against women is a problem for men because we often find ourselves dealing with the impact of other men's violence on the women and girls we love and the women and girls we know. And I think of this you know, in uh, all kinds of ways. I remember a conversation, I don't know if you have these kinds of conversations, but when I've started relationships with someone, often you have a conversation about kind of when you first had sex and your sexual history. And I remember having a conversation with a girl, this is when I was about 25 or something, uh, about you know, when we first had sex. And she told me, well, it kind of depends. It kind of depends what you count. And I thought, well, what do you mean? Um, and I said, no, no, okay, when you first have intercourse. Um, so, you know, I was being quite specific because sex can mean all kinds of things. She said, well, it still kind of depends. And eventually she told me why with some uh, anxiety and self-consciousness. And it was because the first time she had intercourse, she was forced into it. She was sexually assaulted. That was her first experience of sexual intercourse. She lost her virginity to a rapist. Um, it was a guy she knew. He was a guy she thought was a friend. And he, uh, he sexually assaulted her at a party. Um, and she wasn't sure whether to tell that story or the story of her first consensual intercourse. Okay? So I just sort of, you know, my heart dropped and I just didn't know what to say and I felt terrible and awful and, you know, tried to be supportive as best I could. And it was a good, powerful example of, I suppose, the, the shit that some men do to women and how it has an impact for, you know, for all of us. We find ourselves responding to the physical and psychological scars that other men leave. Violence against women is also an issue um, for men because some of us do violence, because some of us use violence against women. And I want to be clear that, you know, standing here and for men who join the White Ribbon Campaign and other efforts, one of the very first things we have to do um, is look critically at our own lives, look critically at our own behaviour, our own relations with women. And for me doing that, I can see ways in which I behave in crappy or sleazy ways to women. I've never, you know, held a knife to a woman's throat, I've never physically assaulted a woman, but I can think of times, for example, in the past when a girlfriend didn't want sex and I was a bit whiny, a bit whingy about that, about the fact that she didn't want to have sex that particular night. So a kind of soft pressure I was putting on her. Um, I don't think I consciously thought she, had, she owed me sex, but clearly I was behaving in a way that didn't really respect, I would say, her wishes to choose when um, and with whom she had sex. I, I can think of... Um, for example, encountering pornography in my late teens and uh, looking at pornography that really treated women in callous and hostile ways. I can think of times when I just stayed silent, when a man said a sexist or violent supportive thing. I sort of didn't know what to say or um, didn't want to be a kind of party pooper and you know, sort of spoil the mood and so on. And that's less the case now. I'm much, I, I use the word stroppy. Is stroppy a word you know? Belligerent, much more likely to speak up and so on. Um, but, you know, I think one of the first things that men doing this work have to do is put our own house in order, look critically at our own lives. Now, because I somehow thought that I'd have much more time, even though there's no way I would, I had some slides that are really about what men should do. Um, I'll just show you this slide, and I'll, I'll, then I'll leap through the end. So I think for men taking up this work, the first thing we have to do is put our own house in order. We have to look critically at our own lives and make sure that we behave in non-violent and respectful ways in our own lives. Second, we have to speak up. We have to speak up when we hear rape jokes or when we hear violent supportive commentary. We have to become positive bystanders. And I'm not talking here about kind of charging in the, you know, as a white knight when a woman is screaming, help me, help me. That doesn't happen very often. I have on several occasions intervened when women were actually having violence done to them. But that's less common than kind of everyday dripping tap of violent supportive comments and behaviours that you will encounter. 
Third, we have to get stroppy. We have to, uh, I'm glad I can use that word. I couldn't use it with some other people. Um, um, we have to get stroppy. We have to make noise and take action. We have to join activist movements. We have to pressure our workplaces, our sporting clubs, our churches, and so on, and really start to build social change. So I say more of that in more detail, but um, let's end with some take-home messages. Engaging men is on the agenda. There's a growing push internationally, locally, to engage men. And there's no doubt there are effective ways we can do that, effective ways to engage men um, in personal change and social change. So if you're a man who cares for women, if you're a man who cares for justice, who cares for gender justice, for gender equality, then act. Act to end violence against women. Thanks. Thank mm -hmm. you.